Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all here this morning, and we're so glad for, for everyone who's here with us and for everyone who's joining us online. Um, if you are able, we would love for you to stand with us as we begin our morning singing and worship. morning. You may be seated. It's good to be gathered here with you this morning, whether you're joining us here in person or you're online. Uh, we're, we're excited that you're here with us. Um, if you're new or don't know who I am, my name is Tim. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and it's good to be with you. If you are new or just want to communicate anything with the church, um, 
there are cards in the seats in front of you that you can write your name and information on and drop it um, in the offering box or get to the church office. Um, we'd love to be able to connect with you if you're new or visiting, just kind of hear about um, who you are. Um, coming up in a couple, well, about a month on on uh, Mother's Day Sunday, we're going to have child dedications here during the service. And, and so... For child dedications, I kind of think of it as you know, like three three reasons why we have child dedications. One, or for just to dedicate the child to God and ask God to help in raising up the child. Second, for like, the parents to stand before the church and commit before their church family to to commit to raising their child in a knowledge of the Lord. And then third, it's a chance for the church to commit to the parents right, to come alongside parents and to the, they're kind of meant to come alongside the parents and help raise that child in whatever way they can. Right? So it's a, kind of a mutual committing together to see children raised in the knowledge of the Lord. And so if you have a child you want to dedicate that Sunday, um, you can either, there's a, in the email that went out this week, there's a Google form you can fill out there. You can also just write it on that card in front of you and drop it in the offering box and we'll, we'll get in contact with you. Or you can contact the church office and we'll get you more information about that. Right, so this, this morning we're going to celebrate communion together at the end of the service. So on your way in, there's a basket with the cups of individual juice and wafer. If you didn't get one of those, you can sneak out at an opportune time and grab one. They're on the table just outside the main doors there. Um, also a part of our communion, we take a, our monthly kind of benevolence offering, kind of offering focused on blessing the community and meeting needs in the community. So there will be someone standing at the door um, on your way out holding an offering plate. That will be for the benevolence offering. In terms of regular giving, we have a slightly new updated way to do that. So if you look on the back wall, there's now two boxes hanging on the back wall that have a sign that says offerings and tithes above them. And so if you want to give, you can drop your offering in those boxes. Um, as opposed to the plate on the table on your way out that we have been doing. That there's a, you can put them in the boxes, or you can give online at tlefca.org slash give, or you can give directly to the church office. With all that said, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we praise you. We thank you for just this chance to gather together here this morning as your people. As we come, as we sing, as we hear your word, we're reminded of your, your goodness to us, your graciousness to us, and allowing us to gather in this place. Thank you for the way you've revealed yourself to each person gathered here. You've been at work in the life of each person gathered here to bring them to this place and this time. Father, we praise you for the work in our lives. Father, we acknowledge that there are people who aren't able to join us this morning, whether because of some physical ailment or other problem, we pray that you'd be with them, that you would um, pour out your 
your grace on them, that you would meet the needs of those who are sick and who are hurting, that you bring healing to those who need healing, that you would bring comfort and patience and endurance to those who need that. Father, we pray for churches around the world who are also gathering this morning, some of them in far more trying circumstances than we are. We pray that you would give your people around the world boldness and confidence in your goodness, even in the midst of trials and uncertainties and difficulties. And we pray that because of the gatherings of churches throughout the world, that your name would go out to people in all nations, that people would hear the good news of Jesus and be drawn to you. God, would you do a mighty work in our world through the gatherings of your churches. Father, as we enter in this time of worship and singing now, God, I pray that you would just tune our hearts to sing your praise, and that our minds would be cleared of other distractions, that we could focus on the words that we sing, worship you and glorify you through the words we sing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand if you're able and sing with us as we continue in worship this morning? In the darkness, my God, that is who you are. 
stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Your way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness.
Father, we praise you for your love for us. That we could do nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. And yet you come after us to show your love for us. Even when we run, even when we rebel, even when we were still your enemies, you sent Christ to die for us. Praise you for that love you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. May you be seated. So in September of 2000, in Dallas, Texas, a meeting took place that changed the face of entertainment forever. This meeting took place in the corporate headquarters of Blockbuster. Between Blockbuster's CEO and the two co-founders of a three-year-old startup company that was struggling to make ends meet. That struggling startup company was Netflix. And so the two co-founders of Netflix came to Blockbuster wanting to sell the rights to Netflix for $50 million. And according to one of Netflix's co-founders, at the mention of the $50 million price tag, Blockbuster's CEO struggled to suppress a laugh. He didn't think they were worth it, and the meeting came to a quick end after that. So Blockbuster, at that time, was valued at $4.8 billion dollars. And it didn't see the value of adding this little startup 
to its company. They were convinced that the old way of renting movies by walking into a physical store would never be replaced. And history bears out just how wrong they were. So four years later, Blockbuster started offering its own service to compete with Netflix. But they only did it as a kind of secondary part of their business model. Their focus was still on their physical stores. They never fully adapted to the future of home entertainment. And we all probably know the consequences of that decision. Ten years after that meeting in 2010, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. Their last corporate store closed in 2014. Meanwhile, Netflix, which in 2000 tried to sell itself for $50 million, was recently valued at $203 billion. When new technologies, when new ways of doing things come around, the old way of doing things, the old static code, is often slow to adapt. And when they do finally start to adapt, they try to do it by kind of patching the new onto the old instead of fully embracing the old. And the results are often disastrous. In the same way, the Pharisees were often trying to force Jesus' teaching into their own religious way of doing things. And the results were often equally disastrous. We see that clearly in this week's passage in Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verse 33, through chapter 6, verse 11. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. If you don't have one, there are some in the seat in front of you. And the verses will be on the screen as well. So these, these verses, they come in the middle of a series of conflicts that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. So the, and these conflicts often stem from the fact that Jesus' teachings often don't fit into the Pharisees' old way of thinking. So two weeks ago, we saw how Jesus clashed with the Pharisees because he claimed to forgive sins, and he clashed with the Pharisees because he ate with sinners. In today's passage, we're going to see Jesus clash with the Pharisees on two more issues. And through all of this, through all these conflicts that Jesus has with the Pharisees, the main idea, the thing we see is that Jesus is superior. That the new way of relating to God that Jesus ushered in is superior to the old religious system of legalism that the Pharisees and teachers of the law subscribe to. So, as we read this morning, just listen and hear how Jesus is claiming to be superior to this old way of thinking. Starting in, verse, in Luke chapter 5, verse 33, this is what we read. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the Pharisees, so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But you, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one teared a new piece, teared a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one poured new wine into old wineskins. 
Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into no new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. One Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and, taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So the way way Luke has structured this passage, he has two concrete examples of Jesus' superiority kind of sandwiched around a parable that Jesus teaches. So he has this discussion of fasting, and he tells this parable about patches and wineskins, then he has the discussion of the Sabbath. So that's a kind of its order. But as we look at the passage this morning, I want to tweak the order just a little bit. Because like Jesus' parable here about wine skin and patches, it's really there to communicate the big idea of this passage. It's the main idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. It's wrapped up in what that parable is saying. And then what he has to say about fasting and the Sabbath are really more specific applications of that main point. And so if we don't understand the point of the parable, we'll miss what Jesus is trying to teach us about fasting and the Sabbath. So with that in mind, we're going to jump down to verses 36 through 39 and take a closer look at Jesus' parable. And then we'll come back and we'll look more specifically at what he says about fasting and about the Sabbath. Right, so that's the plan. Let's jump in here to Jesus' parable. He says first, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. So just imagine, you have this old, ratty, like faded, dirty pair of jeans that have, after a long life, have developed a hole in the knee. But you also have this brand new pair of nice, dark, unfaded jeans sitting in your closet. It would make no sense to like go to the brand new pair of jeans and cut a big hole in them to make a patch for the old pair of jeans. Like For one, you'll have ruined a perfectly good pair of brand new jeans. 
But not only that, like, the old jeans won't even be that great either because they're still an old, ratty pair of jeans. Now they just have, like, one nice little patch on them that doesn't match. In short, like, if you use the new jeans to patch the old, all you end up doing is having two pieces of ruined clothing. And the same thing is true with the example of the wineskins. An old wineskin is old and dry and brittle. It has no give. It has no stretch. But new wine is unfermented. When you put new wine in a wineskin, it's going to ferment, and that fermentation is going to produce gas that's going to cause the wineskin to expand. But if the wineskin's old and can't expand, it can't stretch, then all it's going to do is rupture, and the wine will spill out and you have a big hole in the wineskin. So again, like if you put the new into the old, all you end up doing is ruining both. And that's what the Pharisees are trying to do with Jesus and his teaching. They're trying to patch Jesus' new teachings onto the old structure of Judaism. They're trying to squeeze Jesus' new teachings into the wineskin of the old covenant. And Jesus is saying, like, that doesn't work. Jesus is saying, like, the gospel, the good news that I'm proclaiming to you cannot be mixed and matched with man-made religion. Jesus came to usher in a brand new way of relating to God that is superior to the old way. The Bible's word for these ways of relating to God is a covenant. Jesus has come to usher in a new covenant that will replace the old. And so what what Jesus wants us to understand in telling this parable, what Luke wants us to understand in telling this story, is that Jesus and his new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And so this, this old covenant, the, the way the people of Israel related to God, like had to do with strict rule keeping. If they obeyed, God would bless them. If they disobeyed, God would punish them. God had given them laws in the Old Testament that were meant to be obeyed. But the Pharisees, in in particular, were so worried about breaking the law that they had set up their own man-made laws as fences to keep them from even coming close to breaking God's laws. The problem was that they, they got so wrapped up in making sure they kept the laws they made that they forgot the point of God's law in the first place. God did not give the Israelites the law just as hoops to jump through to appease them or to show their devotion to him. God gave the Israelites the law because as their creator, he knew what was best for them. And he wanted to lead them into a joy-filled life. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had lost sight of that. They lost sight of that goal of a joy-filled life. And because of that, Judaism as a whole had become a very legalistic and rules-oriented religion at the time of Jesus. And Jesus came to do away with that legalism. Not to patch it up, not to refill it with new perspectives or new teachings or new ideas. 
He came to totally get rid of the old covenant and replace it with something new. Hebrews chapter 8 really drives this home. In Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6, the author of Hebrews says this, The covenant of which Jesus is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And a few verses later, he says, By calling this covenant new, he had made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So Jesus comes to usher in a new covenant, like a new way of relating to God. And in doing so, he makes the old covenant obsolete. You remember when like, Blackberries were all their age? Like in 2009, 20% of all cell phones in use were Blackberries. Right, but then Apple launched the first iPhone and Android launched their first phones a few around the same time. And like Blackberry slowly lost its position because it failed to offer some of the same features that Apple and Android offered. Most notably, Blackberry's operating system was significantly less user-friendly than both Apple and Android's operating systems. And so, as Blackberry started to lose popularity, they realized their problem and tried to improve their operating system through software updates. But by that point, it was too late. The customers were not interested in mere tweaks and updates and patches to an old, outdated system. They wanted the brand new experience that Apple and Android offered. BlackBerry had become obsolete. And no amount of trying to patch it up was going to save it from being obsolete. And when Jesus came, he did to the old covenant what Apple and Android did to BlackBerry. He made it obsolete so that no amount of patching or fixing or tweaking could save it. It was time for something new. But the way that God relates to humankind today is through this new covenant, centered on Jesus and on his work on the cross. This new covenant is centered on the fact that Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. He died on the cross on our behalf. So that by, by trusting in Jesus, we have a relationship with God even though we sin. And that's what we just celebrated in Good Friday and Easter. And because of this, New covenant, the old one, the one based on legalistic rule keeping and on a system of sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, have become obsolete. We no longer have to sacrifice over and over again in order to have our sins forgiven. Jesus did that once for all through the new covenant. And yet, we don't always live like the old covenant is obsolete. Or at least, like, I find myself often doing certain things with a, a certain sense of legalism that it's more of an Old Testament, Old Covenant way of thinking than a New Covenant way of thinking. Right? There's a lot of mornings, right? When I wake up and I go and do my Bible reading, right? but I do it because I feel like I'm supposed to, not because, like, my heart is yearning to spend time with in communion with God. There's times when I do an act of service because I feel like I'm supposed to, because it's expected of me, 
because I want to earn God's favor, not out of a desire to honor God and glorify God. But when I engage in that kind of thinking, when I do that, I'm thinking in old covenant categories. I forget the fact that Jesus made the old covenant obsolete. That my status with God is not dependent on my performance, but on Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So we, we have to fight right, that, that old covenant, kind of legalistic, black and white, letter of the law thinking when we see it creeping up in us. We have to remember that we're no longer under the old covenant. We have to remember that Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant, that he has made the Old Covenant obsolete. But we also need to be careful not to take it too far. Jesus making the Old Covenant obsolete does not mean that we should just start disregarding all of God's commands. As we said earlier, God's commands are not hoops to jump through to make him happy. They're given by our loving Creator to lead us into a joyful life. So if we totally disregard God's commands, we're doing ourselves harm. The Pharisees' mistake was not that they were keeping the law. Their mistake was being so strict in keeping the law that they mistook the letter of the law for the spirit of the law. That they attach their status with God to their ability to keep the rules. They attach their sense of importance to their ability to obey the rules. Like, that's what Jesus is rebuking in this passage. Right? Not their obedience, but the way they attach their significance to their obedience. It's not that God's command suddenly became bad. They just need to be kept with the right motives and in the right spirit. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. In the rest of this passage, we see two specific examples of where the Pharisees have become so focused on the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of the law. And in both of these areas, Jesus shows that he's superior to legalistic rule-keeping. The first of these areas is fasting. Jesus is superior to legalistic fasting. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. This is a very like, diplomatic move. Right? The, the Pharisees have figured out, like, Jesus, not our biggest fan. Right? And so they don't lead off with, hey, we, we fast. Because right? that would not have meant much to Jesus. But they start out like, hey, Jesus, like John, you know John, you like John. His disciples fast. Oh, and we do too, by the way, but whatever. And I'm like, well, so why don't your disciples fast? Right. So like, they come and like, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Like John's do, ours do. Like, why don't yours fast? As we're mentioning, right, that the Pharisees mentioned that they fast often. Like, they use that word often despite the fact that there's only one fast, one regular annual fast, commanded anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's with the Day of Atonement. There are certainly examples of people fasting at various times throughout the Old Testament. 
but in terms of a for all people, commanded by God, kind of routine fast, there's only the one attached to the Day of Atonement. And so clearly the Pharisees, and John's disciples for that matter, are fasting more often than is commanded by God. Which is not wrong in itself. Like there are plenty of good reasons to fast even when it's not explicitly commanded by God. The problem comes in when the Pharisees start expecting Jesus and his disciples to match their level of fasting, even though it's not commanded by God. They start to use their fasting as some kind of test of their faithfulness to God. But Jesus responds by saying, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And this cuts right to the spirit of the law. The spirit of the fasting law, one of the main reasons for fasting throughout the Bible is to shift our focus away from earthly things and on to God. Fasting is a means of helping us commune with God more deeply. So Jesus' disciples, they have no reason to fast because they're walking with God day in and day out. They are literally standing in his presence staying in the presence of the God-man Jesus each and every day. Jesus is vastly superior to fasting as a means of communing with God because he himself is God. So there's no reason for Jesus' disciples to fast while he is with them. But that will not always be the case. Jesus goes on to say, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. But Jesus said, like, there's a day coming when he will be taken away. And that word, taken away, in Greek, has like a, a violent connotation to it. And so it's kind of the first clue we see in Luke of Jesus' coming death. So he said, like, they're coming a day when I'll be taken away, when I'll be killed, and then my followers will fast. And that's us today. There's an expectation here that like, we will have times of fasting. Like, likewise, Matthew 16 said to his disciples, when you fast, with the assumption that they will fast. And yet, neither Jesus nor the apostles anywhere in the New Testament prescribe the set of rules or times for fasting. Instead, like, the understanding seems to be that people will enter into fasting on a personal basis, when they feel prompted by the Holy Spirit for a special purpose. Maybe it's a time for repentance of some sin. Maybe it's a time of seeking God's wisdom for a crucial decision. Maybe it's a time for praying for a mighty work of God. There are certainly times for fasting, but the key is what, what lies at the heart of our decision to fast. Fasting is not some magic trick that we can use to force God to act in response to our prayers. Fasting should certainly not be a way for us to show off how holy we are. If you choose to fast, it should be a choice between you and God. Maybe you invite one or two other people to join you in the fast for a certain purpose. And like the goal of fasting is to let your physical hunger prompt you to remind you to trust in God. 
to remind you of Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross. Like, Jesus is the goal, like, not the fasting itself. Because Jesus is superior to legalistic fasting. So fasting was one area where the Pharisees had focused on the letter of the law over the spirit of the law. The other area was the Sabbath. Jesus, again, is going to show that he is superior to legalistic Sabbath-keeping. And this, this idea of the Sabbath right, is an ongoing sort of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees will clash over the Sabbath more than over any other topic. Here in Luke chapter 6, they clash two times. First, they clash because the disciples are walking along and they're picking some heads of grain as they walk along. Right? In Palestine at that time, like, the roads like, will kind of cut through fields and so there's grain. And it wasn't wrong to pick little heads of grain, even though it's not your wheat. Like, it wasn't considered stealing. The Old Testament allowed for that. So that the stealing wasn't the problem. It wasn't considered stealing. But the problem in the eyes of the Pharisees that they did it on the Sabbath. In the eyes of the Pharisees, like no fewer than four Sabbath rules are being broken here. Right? So they were, they were picking the grain, which according to the Pharisees' rules about Sabbath keeping was considered reaping, which is not allowed. Right? They rubbed the grain together in their hands to like clear the grain from the husks, and that was considered threshing, which was against the rules. Right? They, were, they were harvesting, which is against the Pharisees' Sabbath rules. And technically, they were preparing a meal, which is also a violation of the Sabbath rules. And so four rules are being broken. But Jesus responds to that accusation by saying that he is superior to legalistic, fast, legalistic Sabbath-keeping because of who he is. In verse 3 we read, Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Like, we don't have time to get into all the details of what David and his men did and why they did it. Right? But the point is, they broke the letter of the law in the Torah. But he wasn't, David wasn't criticized for two reasons. One, because in the spirit of the law, like human need trumps barren legalism. David's men were in great need for food. So even though they were eating bread that broke the letter of the law, it didn't violate the spirit of the law for them to eat that bread. And the second reason David wasn't criticized was because of who he was. David was the king of God's people, and he was the prototype of the coming Messiah. And Jesus' point here is, like, if, if that was true of David, like how much truer is it of me? Like I'm the ultimate king of God's people. I am the true Messiah. Because of who I am, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Like the Sabbath is not Lord of me. So Jesus is superior to legalistic fasting because of who he is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the second clash of the Pharisees occurs because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He calls the man with a crippled arm up to him, 
in the synagogue, and he knows, he just knows, that the Pharisees are waiting for him to heal this man so they can pounce on him for breaking the rules. So he looks at them, and he says, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And then, verse 10, he looked around at all of them. So just imagine, Jesus has said this. He looked at each of them, waiting for an answer to a question. Which is lawful, to do good or do evil? He looked at them, wait for an answer, but gets no answer. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Jesus' point is that he is superior to the Sabbath because of what he does. Jesus here is doing good on the Sabbath. Jesus is presented with an opportunity to do good, and he takes it. For Jesus, there is no neutral ground. If you're presented with a chance to do good and you don't take it, that's the same as doing evil. If you're presented with a chance to save a life and you don't take it, that's the same as destroying that life. So if Jesus had passed on the chance to heal this man, he would have been doing wrong. And that brings us back to this idea of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. God gave the Sabbath not to be a burden, but to be a gift. The Sabbath was made, as Mark says, for the sake of men, not men, for the Sabbath. So to refuse to do good and to bless this man by healing him would have entirely missed the point of the Sabbath. So Jesus heals him. Because Jesus is superior to legalistic Sabbath keeping. The question then for us is, like, what does this mean for us when it comes to what we do on the Sabbath? And first, like, we need to be careful not to make the mistake of the Pharisees. Like the pilgrims, when they came to America, they had a 39-page book with very small print that just contained their Sabbath laws. John Owen once said, A man can scarcely in six days read over all the duties that are proposed to be observed on the seventh. This is a book of like tiny print of all the rules about the Sabbath that the pilgrims, who are part of this new covenant, had set up. We need to be careful not to fall into our own form of legalism when it comes to Sabbath keeping. However, like the Sabbath is also rooted in God's work of creation, in the fact that he rested on the seventh day. And as people made in his image, we're, like, we're invited to rest, just like he did. Again, this is meant to be a gift to us, not a burden for us. In particular, like on this side of Jesus' work on the cross, like the Sabbath is an invitation to trust in the work that he has done on our behalf. To trust that we no longer have to work and strive to earn God's favor. Because Jesus has done all that is needed for us. The Sabbath is an opportunity for us to rest from our labors, to spend time in worship of God, to do good for others, 
and above all, to trust Jesus enough to rest. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending Jesus. That when it was clear that we could not keep your law, we could not obey your rules perfectly, that the old covenant would never be sufficient for us to have an eternal relationship with you. You sent your Son to come and to perfectly obey those laws and to die on the cross in our place to usher in a new covenant, one rooted in his superior work for us on the cross. Father, as we trust in Jesus, pray that you would help us to rest knowing that he has done the work to rest well, to spend time not laboring, not working, but just being amazed at what a great God you are, what an an amazing Savior Jesus is. Would you help us to fight legalism and rule-keeping that creeps into our hearts, the trust that Jesus perfectly obeyed for us. Because of that, we are free to live a life that glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in response, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, Luke tells us that the Pharisees then sought to kill him. And of course, we know he ultimately, they ultimately succeeded. Eventually they would have him crucified. But before Jesus was crucified, he had one last supper with his disciples. And he used that supper to remind them that he had come to usher in a new covenant between God and men. One based not on man's ability to legalistically obey rules, but on the superior work of Jesus. And so in taking communion, which we're going to do in a minute, like we have this opportunity to remember that because the body of Jesus was broken and because his blood was spilled, like our right standing with God is based on the perfect life of Jesus and not on our ability to obey the law. And taking communion together, we get a chance to remind ourselves in a very tangible way of the superiority of Jesus over the Old Covenant. If the Old Covenant was sufficient, Jesus would not have had to endure what he endured on the cross. But the Old Covenant wasn't sufficient. So Jesus came, his body was broken, his blood was poured out, so that we, through trusting in him, can spend eternity with God, despite our sins and our failures. I just want to give us a couple minutes to before we take a minute to reflect what Jesus has done for us to confess anything we need to confess to God to praise Jesus for what he has done what he what this act of taking communion reminds us of Let's take a couple minutes of
quiet reflection. on the night he was betrayed he took bread and when he given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me partake After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Partake. Father, we thank you for this tangible reminder of the blood Jesus spilled, the body that was broken to usher in the new covenant. We can come to you despite our sins, despite our failures, knowing that Jesus has done all that is needed for us to have a right relationship with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. You are dismissed.